as we uh, head towards Easter, uh, this is what's traditionally called in the church Passion Week. And uh, as we've been saying throughout the last few weeks, please begin to pray and think about who you want to invite to the next two services, Good Friday and Easter. Um, And I've been praying for you, and I've been praying that God would continue to prompt and stir your heart as you pray that you would have boldness and courage to invite folks that need to hear the gospel and be a part of this death and resurrection remembrance of Jesus, our Lord. Um, One of the great questions of history that historians and other people have wondered about is this. Why in the world did the early Christians adopt this as their emblem? Why in the world did the early church, early Christians, adopt the cross as the emblem, as a sign of their faith? To us, 2,000 years later, we just kind of shrug our shoulders and go, of course. But when you begin to realize what this symbolized and what this meant, it's a bit of a Head scratcher. Think about all the major founders of major religions. Think about Confucius, Muhammad, Buddha, and Moses. And most historians will say that when you look at their lives, most of them died in old age, comfort, triumphant over their enemies, being successful as leaders. Moses, founder of Judaism, undisputed leader, one who has brought his people to the verge of the promised land, dies around 120. Buddha dies at the age of 80, and he's surrounded by his devotees. He's surrounded by his disciples. Confucius, who historians say was forced out of his home city, comes back eventually, is received with honor, and he dies around 72. Those who will continue his work. And then there's, of course, Muhammad, who dies in his 60s, having been the first political leader to lead the United Arabia. And he dies in the arms of his wife. Then you have Jesus. And you have Jesus, who dies. He's 33. The most ministry of three years or so. When he dies, he's utterly alone. And some scripture writers even say he's not just abandoned by his followers, he's abandoned by God himself. And he dies on the cross. He dies on the cross and crucifixion was the most shameful, most degraded form of execution. Cicero said that the word crux, which is Latin word for cross, was a swear word. The cross represented shame, weakness, defeat. It represented humiliation. And yet, it's a historical fact that although it created massive problems, the early followers of Jesus adopted this as their emblem. They gladly adopted this and said, that's the way I want to live. (laughs) That's the road that I want to travel. Are you, are you hearing this? The leader who died on that is the man that I want to give my life to. This is what I want in my life. 
question is why? And the answer is simple and yet profound. And we may spend our entire lives thinking about this. The answer is because once the early followers came to understand the meaning of his death, it changed them forever. Once they came to understand the meaning of the cross, it changed their lives forever. And as a result, they transformed the Roman world. And in all the Bible, Jesus nowhere explains the meaning of the cross and his death better than what's known as the Last Supper, the Lord's Supper. And it's to that that we turn our attention today and Good Friday before we head towards Easter. The text is Matthew 26, okay? Matthew 26. On the first day, this is verse 17, I pick it up, of the festival of unleavened bread. The disciples came to Jesus and asked, where do you want us to make preparations for you to eat the Passover? He replied, go into the city to a certain man and tell him, the teacher says, my appointed time is near. I am going to celebrate the Passover with my disciples at your house. So the disciples did as Jesus had directed them and prepared the Passover. Verse 20, when evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the twelve. And then jump to verse 26. While they were eating. What are they eating? They're eating the Passover. What is the Passover? The Passover was the annual meal that commemorated the defining moment in the nation of Israel. The Passover meal was the defining moment in the history of Israel. Do you remember, and we're going to look at the text, Exodus 12 is a text. As the nation of Israel is, is just an unbelievable, unbelievable text. And if you could use your imagination, it, 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 it's just an amazing, amazing thing to wrap our brain around. As the nation of Israel, after hundreds of years of slavery and bondage in Egypt, are about to be delivered in the hands of Moses, delivered from bondage in Egypt, God says, I want you to have this meal. I want you to eat this meal to commemorate what I'm about to do. In Exodus 12, God says, never stop remembering it year after year. Never stop commemorating it, commemorating it year after year. So the Passover is the meal that commemorated this deliverance, this redemption of the nation of Israel. Verse 26, so while they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said to his disciples, take and eat, this is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink from it, all of you. The Passover meal had a form, and here was the form. First of all, there was the presider, the presider. And the presider's job was to explain what the Passover meal was. They didn't just rush to and eat it. There was a presider. And oftentimes in a family, it was the father who would be the acting presider. And the presider's job was to explain what every single element in the Passover meal went. There are a number of elements, but primarily there were three. There was the bread, the unleavened bread, 
that symbolized the haste and the speediness to which the Israelites had to leave. They didn't have time for the bread to rise. So, sorry, I couldn't find unleavened bread. So use your imagination, okay? And then there were four cups representing four promises in Exodus 6. Four cups. There was the bread, four cups. Promises of Exodus 6, which were read as they drank the wine. And of course, there was the main course, the meal, the lamb. The presider would get up. Again, use your imagination. The presider would get up, and he'd bless the elements. And then he'd explain how all the elements symbolize the various aspects of the captivity and deliverance from slavery in Egypt. And right at this point, the presider would get up. And pointing to Deuteronomy 26, he would take the bread. And he would say, this is the bread of our affliction, which our fathers ate in the wilderness. This is the bread of our affliction, which the fathers ate in the wilderness. And then he'd explain the meaning of the bread and its significance to deliverance. Imagine the astonishment of that night. And Jesus gets up, and he utters words that have never been said in history to that point. Because Jesus gets up, and he says, this is my body. What's he saying? This is the bread of my affliction. This is the bread of my affliction. I'm about to do something that this bread pointed to. I am about to bring about the ultimate exodus and the ultimate deliverance. See, 2,000 years later, we sit there and go, to the disciples of Jesus, they are hearing words that have never been uttered before. Jesus is literally saying as he takes the bread, and if you could use your imagination, this is the bread of my suffering because I'm about to lead the ultimate exodus and bring about ultimate deliverance from bondage. Just as this meal was eaten before God delivered the nation of Israel from political and economic oppression and injustice through Moses, I'm about to bring the ultimate deliverance, not just from political and economic oppression and justice, but from sin, evil, and death itself. I'm about to do something that he's literally saying, I am the ultimate Moses bringing about the ultimate exodus and the ultimate deliverance from sin, evil, and death itself. This is my body, my affliction. Take and eat. All other deliverances, all other sacrifices, ultimately is pointing to me, Jesus says. My death is the climactic event to which all of history is moving. By the way, do you realize that this is the only thing that Jesus told his followers to commemorate? 
He doesn't tell them to dramatize his birth. I know we all love Christmas. She doesn't say a thing about his birth and says, I want you to dramatize it. Not his miracles, not his teaching. Get this, not even the resurrection. But his death, he says, do it again and again and again and again. Jesus is literally saying, listen, this is why I came. This is why, and unless you understand and believe this, you miss the entire point of why I came. Verse 27, then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, drink from it, all of you. By the way, this would have been the third cup of the wine, to which you go, how do you know? Because after the fourth cup, they sang what was called the Hallel, Psalm 113 to 118. And after they took the fourth cup, they sang a hymn. And here's what we find in verse 30. After they all were done, they sang a hymn and went out to the Mount of Olives. So this is the third cup to which Jesus raises and says in verse 28. Check this, guys. Check this out. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Sometimes it's difficult to translate in English what the original meaning is because the word this is poured out for. For in English could mean a number of things. It could mean I'm doing something because of you or in response to you. But the preposition that's used here literally means this is poured out on behalf of you. This is poured out instead of you. To understand the meaning of those life-changing words, we need to go back to Exodus 12. The passage that tells us what happened in the night of the Passover. Exodus 12.1. Use your imagination, church. <laughs> the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in Egypt, verse 3, tell the whole community of Israel that on the 10th day of this month... Each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. Verse 4. If any household is too small for a whole lamb, they must share one with their nearest neighbor, having taken into account the number of people there are. Verse 5. The animals you choose must be year-old males without any defect, and you must take them from the sheep or the goats. Take care of them until the 14th day of the month, when all the members of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. Then they are to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lambs. Verse 8, that same night, they are to eat the meat roasted over the fire along with bitter herbs and bread made without yeast. Do not eat the meat raw or boiled in water, but roasted over fire with the head, legs, and internal organs. Verse 11. This is how you are to eat it, with your cloak tucked into your belt, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. Eat it in haste. It's the Lord's Passover. From that same night, 
I will pass through Egypt and straight down on every firstborn of both people and animals. And I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over. The context of this passage is that the people of Israel are in bondage. But they're not just in bondage. The nation of Egypt has subjected Israel to some of the most horrendous oppression, injustice, and evil inflicted on a group of people in the hands of Pharaoh. And the Bible says over and over again that God hates evil and injustice. Church, by the way, is that good news? Anybody looking forward to Easter? God hates evil and injustice. And I'm going a little bit ahead, but Easter is this defining moment when God came down and said, the end of evil and the end of injustice is just a matter of time. But notice, God comes and says, I'm going to bring down on Egypt divine justice. For one night, for one night, for one night, we are going to get a preview of Judgment Day. For one night, we are going to get a mini preview, Moses, of Judgment Day. We're going to scroll forward for one night, get a preview, a glimpse of what Judgment Day is going to look like. Because I am going to bring on Egypt divine justice for human evil and injustice. But church, I have never seen this until I saw it this week. But does God say to Moses and Egypt, I am going to bring justice on the nation of Egypt. But you guys will be fine. Does God say to them, I'm going to bring divine justice. But the nation of Egypt and Egyptians will fall under the hand of justice. But you, the nation of Israel, will not. That is not what God says. Matter of fact, there's one place in Exodus where it says, if an Israelite is found outside, outdoors, not taking shelter under the blood of the Lamb, life is forfeit. In other words, there is no favoritism. It is incredibly egalitarian. God comes and says to Moses, Everyone in Egypt will be subject to justice, not just the Egyptians. Every Israelite household will also be judged. What is God saying? God is saying there's a deeper thing than what Pharaoh is doing to you in political oppression. God is saying to them, there is a spiritual alienation. God is saying to them, every single person breathing, walking in the nation of Egypt has committed the sin of, I'm going to be my own God. I'm going to be my own Lord. Nobody tells me what to do. 
every single person, human being, walking on the nation of Egypt is walking around saying, I'm my own God, I'm my own Lord. And God's justice says, there is no favoritism because your arrogance, your self-righteousness, your desire to be your own God is wreaking havoc in my creation. And as bad as the political and economic oppression is, and God says, I'm going to judge them for that, he says to Moses, you're not going to be spared because of your race. You're not going to be spared because of your morality. Every race, every human being will fall under the hand of justice. What will save you? He says, if you take shelter under the blood. Oh, you're with me this morning. <laughs> he says, if you take shelter under the blood of the lamb, you'll be saved. But to anybody, Israelite or Egyptian, who fails to take shelter under the blood, your life is forfeit. God is saying to them, oh, I'm thankful because I've been praying for this the whole week that you would feel the weight. Some of y'all feeling the weight of this. God is saying, when my justice comes down for that one night, Moses, nobody will be able to survive unless they take shelter under the blood of the Lamb. When justice comes by, only if you and I, by the way, I thought about, I'm like, I'm going to get a, a can of red paint and a brush, and I'm just going to, you know, on the cross and make it all dramatic. But I'm like, no, they could use their imagination. <laughs> when justice comes by, it's only if you've taken shelter under the blood of the Lamb. Is there any hope for you? God is saying to Moses, it's not your race. It's not your pedigree. It's not your morality. It's not your achievement. The only way you'll be safe is if you place your faith in a substitute and take shelter under the blood of the Lamb. Why a substitute, though? Because in Egypt that night of the Passover, in every single household, there was either a dead lamb or a dead son. And the only way that you were spared, I'm going to say it two more times, okay? Is if you took shelter in what? A substitute. Say it with me. Substitute. Under the blood of the Lamb. By the way, for those of you that are not Christian, agnostic, or becoming, and you see Christians singing the songs about blood of the Lamb, like you're sitting there, no, what's that all about? Now you know. 
only if you take shelter under the blood of the Lamb. And it's based on your faith in a substitutionary sacrifice. Now, if you're paying attention this morning, it leaves you with a couple unanswered questions. And that is this. Why, Peter? Why does the sacrifice of the Lamb give you exemption from justice? And the answer of Isaiah, John the Baptist, and Jesus is it doesn't. The sacrifice of the lamb is not what gives you exemption from justice and judgment. What did? See, when Jesus got up to bless the meal that night, there was the bread, there was the wine. But there's something missing, which is what? The lamb. Every single gospel writer doesn't mention a lamb at the table. Do you know why? There was no lamb on the table because the lamb of God was at the table. There is no lamb on the table because the lamb of God is at the table. That's the reason why when John the Baptist sees Jesus for the first time, he says what? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Why would John call a human being a lamb? Because Isaiah did. Isaiah 53 The prophet predicts the coming of the suffering servant. And Isaiah understands, church, that an animal can't be sacrificed on behalf of a person. A person has to be sacrificed on behalf of another person. That's why he says in that famous suffering servant passage of Isaiah 53, verse 7, he, speaking of Jesus, was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a what? A lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before its shears is silent, he did not open his mouth. Verse 12, he poured out his life unto death. When Jesus Christ says in verse 28, this is my blood poured out, he is saying, I am the suffering servant that Isaiah pointed to. I am the Lamb of God that John spoke about. I am the Lamb to which all other lambs ultimately pointed to that takes away the sins of the world. He could not have made it more clear than to do this when? On the night of the Passover. Have you taken shelter under the blood of the Lamb? Have you by faith taken shelter in a substitute who gives his life 
for another. The second question, if you're paying attention this morning, is why do we need a sacrifice? You know, I actually get this question a lot, speaking to my non-Christian friends. Why can't God just love us? Anybody else get that? Why the gore? Why the blood? Why the, you know, is he some angry, primitive, you know? Why the gore? Why the blood? Why the sacrifice? If he wants to love us, just love us. He's God. He can do anything. To which the answer is simple. And that is all love, all real love, all real life transforming love is substitutionary sacrifice. All love. Parents know this intuitively. You're damn right. Parents know, parents, you know what I'm talking about? All love, all real love, all life-transforming love involves substitutionary sacrifice. You have never loved a broken person. You have never loved a hurting person. You have never loved a wounded person. You have never loved a person in trouble, a guilty person, except through substitutionary sacrifice. If you love a person whose life is all put together, if you love a person who has no issues, if you love a person who has no dysfunction, if you love a person that requires nothing from you, That's not real love. By the way, there's like three people in the entire city of Chicago that are like that. Go find them and become their friends. (laughs) If you love a person, if you love a person who's broken, wounded, or hurting, it inevitably involves prostitutionary sacrifice. Let me give you an example. How many of you, when you see an emotionally wounded person walking towards you, just wants to turn around and go the other way? Okay, well, your past is the only one I guess. <laughs> Can I just be honest? If you try to love someone with needs, if you try to love someone with brokenness, someone who is insecure, someone who's in trouble, someone who's persecuted, someone who's emotionally wounded, you realize you can't bring them up without, in some ways, you going down. You can't love a wounded, empty person without, in some ways, it emptying you. Why y'all looking at me like I'm crazy? Do you know what I'm talking about? Real love. If you again, if you're one of those people that says, "I have zero desire to be around wounded, hurting, broken people, and I want to hold my own comfort and security and blah blah blah," you might not know what this is like. But if anybody that tries to love an emotionally wounded person, if you really love them, you can't love them without you some ways being emotionally drained. You, they will not going to be filled up until you empty out. If you hold on to your emotional comfort, if you just stay away from people who are hurting, they'll think it's either them or you. The only way, true way to, love someone in a way transform them is in some ways their drainage is going to come on you and you're going to be emptied to fill them. There's no other way. By the way, do you realize that that's what we're called to as Christians? 
And this is the reason why every single Sunday I get up here and I hammer the gospel. Do you know why? Because the reality is you and I are called to not ignore the hurting, but to love them. And here's the reality check. You ready? You can't love them in the way they need to be loved until you're full and have something to give. Otherwise, you're going to stay away from hurting people. You're going to ignore hurting people. You're going to have one nothing to do with them. But unless you realize that there's a fullness that comes to Christ, you listen carefully, teachers, social workers, actually human beings. You can't love and pour and give without it draining you. You know this. Think of how many movies have this theme for crying out loud. The Equalizer. Denzel Washington, anybody? <laughs> Taken. One, two, three, what, six of them now, right? <laughs> what do all these movies have in common? Think about this. You're minding your own business. You're going about. You're an upstanding citizen. Nobody's after you. And then what? Someone who is being hunted comes into your life and says, I need help. I need help. I'm being hunted. Someone's out to kill me. And you have a decision to make, don't you? If you're Denzel Washington, what do you do? <laughs> you go, I mind my own business. I'm retired from being an assassin. Get away from me. You don't do that. What do you do? You say what? The moment that you identify with them, you lose your comfort. And all of a sudden, their danger comes on you. The moment you say, I'm going to help, the moment you say, I'm going to be involved in your life, you then become hunted. You then become someone who now these people are after. You can't, you can't enter into their danger and bring them to safety without you entering into their danger. Are you hearing me? Okay, one more corny example, and then I'm going to... High school, there's always that girl or the guy who's the dorky one. Nobody wants to be around them. And what do you do? You go, me? I'm a Christian. I am better than y'all because I'm going to love that person. <laughs> Which is totally self-righteous and wrong. But anyway, you get to follow me on the analogy. <laughs> because you know what? I could have used actually a, a, a more painful example like, why are we always drawn more to the successful, the achieving, the well-to-do, the famous is it not to make up our own lack? Don't you hang around smart people because you want to feel smarter? Okay, but we're not going to go there, see? We're going to use a very trivial, like, junior high exam. What happens? There's that girl. And you go, you know what? I'm going to go befriend them. And all of your friends are like, well, what are you doing? What are you doing? Why would you want to be friends? And you realize you can't truly love that person without some of their dorkiness rubbing off on you. Okay. Enough of the silly examples. Do you know how much this idea dominated the life of Jesus? You can't read the Gospels without coming across this dominating. Do, do you know this passage? Some of y'all are like, oh, I thought that's not what it meant. Luke 13, 34. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, Jesus is speaking. You who killed the prophets and stoned those who sent you. How often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings and you are not willing. And all of us, we then go, oh, that's so cute. Jesus is 
the mother hand and we're... Do you know what N.T. Wright says about that? He says, do you realize that's in the context of judgment? And Jesus is saying, when judgment comes, I will protect you under my wings. National Geographic had this story. Massive wildfire in Yellowstone Park. Rangers went up after the fire to check out the damage. And one ranger came across a bird who was completely ashen, petrified under a tree. Completely scorched. And just freaking out the eerie sight, the ranger took a stick and poked it, at which point three little baby chicks came out her wings. She was burned to crisp so that her babies could live. That's the image when Jesus says, how I long to gather you under my wings. Jesus was burned to a crisp so you can live. Jesus was burned to a crisp. So we can live. In Christianity, you don't have a bloodthirsty, angry God. You have a God who comes himself and says, I will take upon your sins. I will take upon your punishment. I will take upon the justice that should come on you and protect you so you can live. Why does God need to die, Peter? Why does God need to gore? Because here's the reason why. You say you believe in a God just loves you, that just loves you. What did it cost that God to love you? That's the reason why you're not weeping. That's the reason why your heart's not melted. What did it cost that? Oh, loving, I just want to love people, God. And if you're a Christian... Has this God who was burned to us crisp so that we could live, so that the justice of God could bypass us, has that God and his love penetrated your heart so that that love is coursing through your veins every second, every moment of your life? No, of course not. No, of course not. It's head knowledge. It's not here. It's not here. I'm just like you. It's not here. And that's why, to me, the most profound part, actually, of this text is Jesus, after giving the meaning of his death at this meal, he says, take and what? Eat it. He says, Take and what? Drink it. It doesn't do any good to have an amazing meal prepared for you if you what? Don't eat it. There's no nutritional value to that bread if you don't take it and what? Eat it. Jesus is saying, have you... I, He's saying, I know you know it up here, but have you taken the meaning of what I did? 
Have you taken it and have you appropriated it? Have you eaten it? Have you taken it into your depths? Have you taken this and taken into your depths? And by the way, Jesus says, don't just do this once. Well, I believe that I've taken shelter under, the, under the, the blood of the Lamb, and I'm a Christian. He says to do it in remembrance of me. In other words, he says to do it continually. It's silly to go. That was an amazing meal in 1996. <laughs> Still picking my teeth out, too. He says, what? Every. I make light of this. You and I can't do the Christian life, listen, if every single day we are not appropriating the meaning of the cross. Think of how crazy it is to go, well, it's been 10 days since I've eaten, and yet we go 10 days, 30 days, 60 days without appropriating. Taking it in and taking it in and taking it in, thinking it, living it, thinking it some more and living it. Do this in remembrance of me. Take what I did for you and drive it into the center of your being. Think it out, live it out, the implications, the ramifications of the cross and every aspect of your life until it becomes a reality. It trans- Am I speaking a foreign language? Take it and eat it. Take it and appropriate it. Not once every two months, every single day. How do you do that? I'm almost done. Cece, come on up. How do you do that? How do you do that and what does it look like? I'm just going to give a handful of examples and then we're done. The cross, the Bible says, was an emblem of shame. But for cross, he says in 1 Corinthians, we should glory in the cross. He says the cross is source of our glory, or literally our significance and our worth. Church, 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 brothers and sisters. What would compel somebody to do this for another on, think it out, live it out in remembrance. Jesus, what, what does this tell you about your worth and your value? Come on, what does this tell you? It tells you that if you have taken shelter under the blood, you are of infinite value. You are of infinite worth. And no amount of pop psychology, self-love garbage out there will be able to transform your life like the thought of knowing he did that for me. You don't believe it, though. I don't believe it. How do I know? Look at the way we respond to criticism. Look at the way we respond to criticism. Holy cow, from you? 
You're going to criticize me. I'll be like, oh, that's how I am. How about you? And then a small little compliment from some nobody, it makes us our day. When the cross says, you are of infinite value that I did that. We don't realize the height and the width and the depth of his love for us. We don't realize the worth and the value. That's why Jesus says, take it, appropriate it. Do it, remember. Suffering. Suffering. When you and I go through suffering, the cross completely transforms our suffering if it's taken into the center of our lives because the cross reminds us, and I've said this over and over again, the cross reminds us that even though we know, we don't know what the reason is for suffering that comes into our lives and it remains a mystery, we know what the reason isn't and the reason isn't that he doesn't love us. Don't you dare believe the lie that says when you go through suffering, it's because God doesn't love you. Why? Because of all the gods, of all the religions, this is the only God with scars. Show me another God who says, here's how much I care about suffering. I'm going to come and suffer so that I can end it all. You don't believe it, though. Because when you suffer, when I suffer, we go, you know what? Because I can't really think of a good reason for this suffering. There can't be a good reason. Okay, there's like two people who are like, that's me. I'm sorry, but lovingly, gently, I'm going to push you. When you're suffering, does this make sense? Does this make sense? Because I... Five-second life here and gone tomorrow. Don't know the reason and make sense of it. There has to be no good reason. Can you trust in the one who says, God with scars. Can you trust in the one? I could just imagine that day, Good Friday, all of his disciples looking at, and they were like you and me. They look at the cross and going, there's no good reason for that. And yet God took the greatest tragedy, seemingly, and the greatest suffering, seemingly, and brought about the greatest good. Your salvation. My salvation. Redemption for the whole world. What would happen if we believed this truth? And then there's some of you who are still haunted by your past. Yes, I'm talking to you. You're still haunted by your past. And every time you try to sing, every time you try to pray, what you did last night, the week before, six months ago, six years ago, comes haunting you. Here's my message for you. Your acceptance and your love by God is not dependent on your past, but Christ's past. Not on your record, but Christ's record. 
Your past has nothing to do with the fact that he looks at you right now. And if you've taken shelter under the blood, he loves you like he loves his son. One more. I can keep going, going, going. One more. The Paul also says that the cross to that culture was a form of hostility, but it's become a symbol of peace in Ephesians 2. He talks about how if you've taken the cross into the center of your being, it knocks down every wall that exists between humanity, Greek and Jew. Man, woman, slave nor free. The cross comes and brings about a level of humility. Listen carefully. Level of humility that if you've taken the cross into the center of your being, there is not a single person on face of this earth that you'll ever feel even remotely superior to. You got that thing like I'm better because I'm more educated. Money. That thing will die at the foot of the cross. And what does that do? It did what it did in the first century. It creates a community of people that the watching world goes, how is that even possible? And Paul says, it's because when you take the cross into the center of your being, you realize that we all kneel at the foot of the cross and we say the ground is leveled. Anybody can come. Doesn't matter what you've done. Anybody can come. Doesn't matter where you are. But I did that. Anybody can come. The cross really is the ultimate equalizer. Sorry, I had to get that in. Is that good news? Church, is that good news? See, all of this is here, but um, empty. <laughs> empty. The reason is because I was like, oh, we're going to take communion Sunday. But we're not. You know why? Because you're not ready. Here's what I mean. It's not a judgment on where you are spiritually. You're not ready in a sense of some of you are just sitting here going. And what I need you to do is I need you to think on the cross Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. And then when you walk in, you're on Friday. We're going to take it. This Friday, we're going to take it. And I can't explain it beyond this. The Bible says that there is something about this, that the Holy Spirit and Jesus takes this thing that we do in remembrance of this act more than worship, more than Bible study, devotional life. There is something that happens in this practice of the Lord's Supper where God comes and he takes the cross and he drives it into the center of our being that awakens our soul like nothing else can. So, this Friday, we're going to look at this text. This was a two-part sermon. I didn't want to get all that in today. We're going to look at a slight portion, the last two verses, and then we're just going to take communion and just worship. This is my body. Poured out. Drink it. 
Thank you, Father. found myself as I began this past week, if this is just head knowledge and has not come down to your heart in a way that it affects your affections and your soul, that you're sinking it and living it out and applying it to every aspect of your life. I just want to say, before Carlton and the worship team lead us in this song of response, take a moment. Take a moment, say, help me, Jesus. Help me, Jesus. Those words, help me, Jesus. Three words that our Jesus loves to hear. Help me, Jesus. Oh, how he loves Oh, how of infinite worth and value are you. Oh, how amazing. Amazing. This is love for 